This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Uh, as uh, expected, Hamilton City Council, the committee dealt with uh, the Waterfront Trust. Uh, the uh, people from the Waterfront Trust made their presentation uh, as per requested by City Council yesterday. And uh, as expected, of course, uh, members of the Waterfront Trust were very defensive and uh, shocked and bugged that somebody would actually have the audacity to uh, ask about financial statements and question uh, the effectiveness of the uh, of the trust. But that's history. That happens all the time. And also, not unexpectedly, a number of councils simply circled the wagons and defended their tr- Waterfront Trust and on and on it goes. And they passed this benign motion that said they're going to work together, yada, 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 and they all held hands. Well, not everybody did. Uh, there were some people that asked some questions. Uh, Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly, who uh, brought this to a head with her request for a forensic audit, uh, was at that meeting yesterday. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us her take on this. How are you doing this morning, Donna? I'm good. How are you this morning, Donna? So were you, answer- uh, you satisfied? Were all your questions <laughs> answered yesterday? That's a rhetorical question. I-, I think you actually summarized it quite well, really. Um, it was uh, it was an odd it was an odd meeting, but it. it but you, know, you come it, on, you it, had to expect that was going to happen. Yes, I, I actually was surprised at how defensive uh, some of the um, some people were. To be honest with you, but and I'm a little and I'm terribly disappointed. Not a little, but I'm, I'm disappointed that there's such resistance to have somebody from outside of our groups come in and just look to see if there's a better way, a more effective way, a more cost-effective way of running departments, agencies, divisions of the city. There's just this resistance, and I think it benefits us all. We have an in-house auditor that can do so much of this work and has and has, has brought uh, some incredible recommendations. They've been very... Uh, thorough and productive, and there's this resistance, and, and it's, un, it's unfortunate. Why? Why is it there? Bill, you work there. You tell me. I don't know. There's just this resistance to have anybody come in and say, I think, let's just take a look. But, and, but, know, there was, it, but there was no resistance when they wanted to blow up the HECFI board. Exactly. And, and they did so, that because they said, this is not effective. We're spending way too much money on this. We need to find a better way. Yet Waterfront Trust seems to, to, to be a sacred cow. And, and I think a lot of people are asking why. Nobody, contrary to what some of the people at the Trust uh, said yesterday, nobody's saying there's, there's anything illegal going on there. There was no inference of that. They're simply saying, is there a better way for the city to be handling the, the money that they're pouring into the waterfront every year? And maybe somebody else who can do it more effectively. And you know what? If a city or any city, including Hamilton, doesn't ask those questions every year, they're not doing their job. Exactly. And we're being criticized. And now the, and you will hear this. This will be the narrative between now and next October. Oh, it's just politics. Oh, she's just politicking. Oh, it's politics. Well, it's not. It's what we were elected to do. And there is resistance. And there are certain people who simply do not want um, anybody to come in and, and mess with whatever has existed for many, many years. And I know there was um, uh, a lot of resistance to the fact that I, I don't meet privately with a lot of the counselors and say, this is what I'm going to do. It's not my style. I think we should be more open and transparent. That's not the way apparently you play game when it comes to um, politics in the city of Hamilton. But that's the way I think yeah, the best way of, of moving forward. There are certain things you have to discuss, sure, in an office. But uh, I think that we need to be more open and more transparent. But you know, Donna, when you hear and you talked about this and you reported on this uh, when uh, when you were in the media, 
when we people hear about that, you understand that there's a perception that that's, well, you know what, you scratch my back this time, I'll scratch yours next time. Uh, there's, exactly. there's There's a fine line between, yeah, we met to discuss it, and yeah, we decided, okay, you support me on this, or back off on this, and, and I'll remember that next time you need something. Or if you don't, I'll remember that the next time you need something. And don't tell me that doesn't go on. Well, I think... I, I have a couple of questions. I, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but uh, some questions that didn't get asked, asked yesterday, uh, and as a result, I think a number of people still have some questions. Uh, and these are a lot of the listeners that have raised uh, issues with us over the last couple of months as we've talked about this. Uh, the Waterfront Trust has no money. All right, that's a fact, right? I mean, it was started way back when, when they got a big grant of money from the federal government as a, as a settlement for the lawsuit. We know that. They spent that money a long time ago. It's gone, Okay. So here's one question I've got that I don't think anybody asked yesterday. There are 133 full and part-time employees at the Waterfront Trust. Who funds the, their, their, their salaries? Where, where's that money coming from? Well, I think they're arguing that that's built into the cost of part of that. Many of that may be, many of those people may work at Williams Coffee Pub. Um, some of them are coming, you know, some of them are paid through the money that the city does give. And, and So in know, other words, honest- they're so, yeah, but Donna, there's the question. Yeah. If they're being paid from the money that the city gives them, then they're de facto city employees. In other words, they they can't even afford to pay their own people. The city is subsidizing the Waterfront Trust with salaries. Is is that what you're telling me? Yes. <laughs> yes. So and when Councillor Farr when Councillor Farr asked uh, Chris Murray yesterday, the city manager, how much would it cost to bring all these operations in? And, and they said, well, to bring 133 people into the city payroll would be over a million dollars. If they're already being paid by the city, he's double counting. You're right. Well, I, I well mean, how come nobody brings this up? Everybody just nods their head and goes back and plays on their iPhones, and nobody does anything about it. Because when you do raise things, as you saw, you are vilified, attacked. Instead of asking questions, we heard comments from Councillor Marula and Councillor Partridge saying, how dare anybody tarnish the image of the Waterfront Trust? We should be congratulating them and and, um, commending them on the wonderful things that they do. And perhaps, Bill, maybe, as I said, maybe this is the most well-oiled machine in in the city, but we're not going to know. because Yeah, but you know what? They're using your money and my money to oil it. And we were told we have no oversight. We have no authority over... There is no oversight. They, they don't answer to the city. They don't no. answer to the federal government. Who has oversight no. over these people? Uh, that was made very clear yesterday. And, and I was told even if we wanted and directed them to have a, a, an audit of some sort, we don't have the authority to enforce it, which is bizarre. Um, and And it was made very clear, even though we are subsidizing a lot of the um, the salaries, at the trust, and even though we own that land now, it was federal land, it is now our land, we have no authority over it. What's wrong with that? Does that not raise red flags? Well, it didn't. I mean, when, when Mayor Eisenberger asked that question, or actually made that statement yesterday, that they don't answer to the city, they don't answer to the feds, everybody just seemed to shrug their shoulders. Well, so, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Let me it, go. Let me go back it, to my emails. Yeah, you know, but not, there, there are a number of other things here too. Because I know they. Because every time the Waterfront Trust comes before the council, they always start off talking about how wonderful they are, and they talk about their fishing derbies and everything else. Uh, they talk about the the Hamilton Beach Trail, the extension of the Waterfront Trail, which, uh, if I recall, it was done with the federal money. So I mean, that's 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 past stuff. Okay. Uh, they also talked about the the HW uh, the, the Discovery Center, uh, which I don't know if I'd put on the resume if I were them, uh, because that's been a debacle since they've taken that thing over. 
Uh, and, and and then there's the issue of the deficit, okay? And I know you did talk about that, uh, the, notwithstanding the fact that they said that uh, that they do not run uh, and waste money. They are running a deficit of over $230,000. Now, the auditor says, well, part of that is uh, because of what he calls an extraordinary item, $96,000 in legal fees associated with a tenant dispute. Well, they're involved in that. We don't even know whether or not they caused it yet. So for him to simply say, don't even worry about that number, that's irrelevant. It's very germane to this discussion. Yes, it is, and so is the outcome. And and as a result, you know what? If they lose that lawsuit, it's going to cost a hell of a lot more. So how how can people just turn a blind eye to this? And and no. for Councillor Partridge to say, how dare them impugn the integrity? How dare Council not look into this? Well, I'm glad you're saying this because it's tough. I'll tell you, it's tough sitting around that table when you are vilified. And I'll tell you, a lot of our conversations were practically... I felt like I was uh, in a courtroom yesterday when we were asking questions as opposed to talking to someone who is um, overseeing money that came from taxpayers to uh, maintain property owned by taxpayers. And we were, you know, I was attacked for how dare I raise those questions and, and I've answered your question and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this whole scenario? And is nobody else seeing this? And doesn't anybody else recognize that we have an obligation to ask these questions? This isn't my land. It's not their land. It is land owned by the residents and taxpayers of this city. And it is valuable land. And we are about, and I raised it yesterday, to embark on this massive undertaking that will transform the waterfront and will transform the city's image. And yet we are being held back. How dare we ask questions? Let me ask you about audit. And I know we're kind of getting into wordsmithy here, but you asked for a forensic audit, and of course you couldn't even get a seconder for that. Which which I didn't, actually wh- asked for a value for money audit. Well, and that's that's the that. point I want to make here, Donna, uh, because I know that uh, the, the the BDO guy, Mr. Brink, uh, was there yesterday, uh, and he's the one that said, "Look, at I've done the last five audits here," and the, the phrase he used was, "They have all been clean." But that's a money-in, money-out kind of audit, if I, mm-hmm. if I would get this right. In other words, all he's like, it's a bookkeeping exercise. Here's mm-hmm. how much money they brought in. Here's how much money they spent. Okay, nobody's put it. Th- th- there's nothing untoward. But there's no value added to that. There's no, there's no evaluation of how that money was spent. It's simply that, that it looks good. In other words, it, it balances. Well, exactly. It, that's all right, exactly I can, I can balance my checkbook at the end of the month, but, you know, somebody's going to look at it and say, you blew money on this and this instead of paying the mortgage. That's exactly. a value-added audit. I don't think that yes. that's what's going on here. And, and yet we couldn't get, how dare we look, look, at, look at the books, they're clean. There's also something that I asked him, and I know that we constantly, they don't want me to raise this, and it was years ago. But there was something that came up in the minutes that were provided recently, and it's a reference to a person who was, the subject of a an audit um, that was um, an adverse opinion, and I asked, and, and for most people, they adverse opinion means nothing. But when you're looking at a financial statement and that adverse opinion is raised or that is a designation, it's an incredibly serious designation. And I asked the auditor yesterday, have you, how many have you ever, you know, issued? And he said, in his career, never one. And the yes, they're serious. Well, there was an adverse opinion. And the subject of that adverse opinion, there were a lot of things that were listed, is, is still in our minutes. So what I was trying to raise is, this alone should raise red flags. And, and what was done? What was done? And I can't seem to get an answer to that. Oh, it was years ago. Yeah, but we're still 
dealing with the same people. And, you know, I will, I will follow up on that, I think, before council, because I think it is important. And I, I think the whole point of providing a financial statement, yes, as you said, I, 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 uh, this is how much it costs and this is how much uh, we raise. That's fine. But when you're talking about value for added, and we have an in-house auditor who has done a, a pretty darn good job so far on the projects that he's been um, asked to investigate, I think that that would have answered all of these questions, and we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Donna, let be- me ask you something on policy here. And, and, I, and again, I'm, I'm going through what information I have here to try to ascertain whether or not this is something that the trust has even identified or, or, or spoken to. Uh, because they, they, their assertion is, by the way, that they can do this work cheaper than the city. And I, I, I have a lot of questions about that. Are they bound to follow the same procurement policies as the city? In other words, when it comes to bidding no. process. Uh, so they don't. So they could be sole sourcing stuff. They could be yes. giving contracts to friends. We don't know that, do we? Yes, you're right. Absolutely, you're right. They don't. So that's Period. that's that's a concern, and should be a concern, by the way, as to the way that they do business. Uh, so there's just so many questions here, and it's our money. It's one thing when there's federal money and they've got a big pot of money to work with. The dynamic has changed. The other question is, and this is something that a listener sent in, and I'm, uh, it's Gary who's been listening to this for quite some time, and says, why are they partners in the development of Pier Seven and Eight? Who on the Waterfront Trust has the expert in ur- or expertise, rather, in, sorry, in urban planning and design? that's required for this? Apparently they have 150 years behind them in, on planning um, the group that they've put together. and uh, The Waterfront Trust or the, the city well, itself? The Waterfront Trust. So, again, a value for a uh, okay. money audit would, would provide clarity. and Identify uh, who those people are. Well, or whether they are, they do have the expertise. The other thing is, if we have no oversight, how much oversight do we have in the development and planning moving forward? And, you know, we, we have no authority over this, over the trust. So how much authority do we have on decisions with the land? I don't know. I don't know. And, and that's the problem. We had a motion yesterday to have staff sit down and talk to um, uh, Waterfront Trust uh, directors to have some involvement on future um, decisions with where the, where the Waterfront Trust is going to develop and how it's going to develop. Uh, I mean, the land that it oversees, I should say. So, really? I I just, I didn't see that a whole lot got answered yesterday. I, I just see that the Waterfront Trust came up there, and once again, they, they, they shook their fists and said, how dare you, and council just, yeah, yeah, we're sorry. We're, we're, we're really bothered. We're offended that we actually did this. Yeah, this is really what the job is all about. This is about oversight. And there are many other boards and agencies, and I know the same sort of thing that you're required and asking of, of them to do is the exact same thing that a number of those people that were up on their, their high horse yesterday are going to be doing to other boards and agencies in about four months during the budget process. But they don't want to do it to the Waterfront Trust. And I'm not so sure they will be doing it to other boards and agencies. Well, they have in the past. Boy, when conservation well, authorities and other boards come before them, they're, they're pretty good with, at getting the microscope out. Well, it'll be interesting to see through the budget process. Again, as I said, we have a very good uh, in-house auditor who could be looking at this and provide so much clarity, and there is just absolute resistance, and it's not going to happen. And I don't know what it will take, Bill. I don't know what it will take. Um, I will be, this conversation will be brought up again, and it will be, how dare you slam? You know, we answered all the questions. We were transparent. What more do you want? 
uh, how dare the media continue to vilify the trust. And yet, I think a lot of the members of the media who had been asking for, for questions, a- answers to questions, were, they were not stunned, but confused or, or somewhat disappointed, perhaps, that they felt that, you know, they were also being um, left out. With, they weren't, their questions weren't answered. Just let's, I'll just leave it at that, and, and, and rightfully so. Uh, and, and the, you know, that whole conversation about not having to release minutes and how onerous it is to take notes and, and provide, um, uh, a document of, of the meeting, any minutes of the meeting was a very odd response as well. And well, yeah, but I mean, on the other hand, since they don't, they're not accountable to you or anybody else, I mean, why should they? They don't have to. Apparently. Yeah. So on that rather cryptic note, I guess we have to finish off. We're just about out of time, at least for this chapter anyway. Donna, thanks so much. Appreciate the time today. Have a good day. Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's funny, uh, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about LRT construction and the actual construction, like digging in the ground. And uh, one of the people on the panel uh, had raised the issue that, you know, when you start construction like that, they got the possibility of, uh, well, disturbing some of those nests of, of, of vermin that are living below the ground that we don't pay any attention to because we don't often see them. Well, apparently it's already happened. We already have a rat problem in the city that may get worse during LRT construction. Uh, you don't need to tell Sam Marullo that the counselor for Ward 4. He's been dealing with it for some time. He uh, joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Morning, Sam. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill, and yourself? Good, good. Uh, we talked about this vis-a-vis LRT construction, but uh, I was surprised to find out that you've been dealing with this in your area for a long time. What's going on this year? Well, uh, as a direct result of the significant uh, redevelopment of our sewer structure, uh, as you can recall, back in 2004 and forward, we were having a flooding crisis. So as a direct result, we've allocated tens of millions of dollars for that redevelopment. So I experienced the, the rat infestation a lot sooner than others as a direct result of the renewal that uh, is, is happening in East Hamilton. Having said that, as a direct result, I, I studied the issue vis-a-vis the public health department and our staff. I've had a number of town hall meetings. I've sent out um, notices accordingly with respect to what to do in the event that it does occur. But the issue is this. When it comes to the LRT, we need to be proactive in integrating a proactive positioning of, of, the, um, of, of mitigating aspects as opposed to reactive in the past, we would we would have uh, these RFPs go out, the construction would start, and then we would see the rat problem and we would react to it. What I'm proposing and what staff agrees with is that we need to deal with that at the front end as opposed to the back end and build it into the contract so we're dealing with it at the contractor level as opposed to the city level. Sam, when they started the uh, construction on the Red Hill uh, some years ago, uh, you and, and you, well, C- Councillor Collins, of course, your neighbouring councillor, yep. you're in Ward 4, he's, Chad's, of course, in Ward 5. Did you experience that kind of problem then? Not so much. Um, we did experience other types of uh, displacement, um, but we had some of it, but not to the same degree as the sewer reconstruction. Uh, and as a direct result, um, uh, we really had to get ahead of the curve. So in the East End, we've, we've been really ahead of the curve. Not to say that the problem's been eliminated, because it's not. But the problem really lies and rests with each individual resident. And that's the key to this, is that if you don't have a food source or a water source in your backyard, then you're not going to have the problem. And if you don't feed feral cats, you're not going to have the problem. If you don't leave your dog feces lying around in your backyard, then you won't have the problem. The only way you have a problem, if you have a bird feeder as an example, which is the significant 
a significant culprit with respect to rat infestation, they love bird feed. So they will travel great distances if you have a bird feeder that's falling particularly on, the, on your lawn. Um, so these are the types of um, issues and information that people need to understand and to protect their house against that type of infestation. But really, the responsibility lies with each individual homeowner as opposed to having the city create a budget line to chase down these, the rat infestation when we can simply prevent the problem from occurring. Uh, yeah, it's one thing for people to say, hey, we love nature and we want to feed our little neighbors, you know, our beasts, our squirrels and our, our birds and everything else like that. But there are, there are consequences to that as well. Uh, but there are also other people, Sam, that I guess in, in, you know, with the movement, the environmental movement that's gone on, a number of people that are, are recycling garbages, et cetera, and they've got uh, composting things. Is that part of the problem, too? No, because, uh, as you know, the green bins, as an example, can't be penetrated. So yeah. They've been engineered to prevent that type of uh, problem from occurring as a direct result. Well, I, with exceptions to the rule, I can remember when I lived down by the Brow years ago that uh, the little rascals, the raccoons in this case, not rats, but uh, they can get in there. They're, they're, they're very uh, inventive when it comes to that. But it's, you're right, it's difficult to do, but at least it helps. They're a lot stronger. They're a lot stronger uh, and agile as well. Uh, but the, the, I don't, I've never seen a rat be able to tip over a green curve, but I know raccoons can. Oh, yeah, they can do this. So public education's got to be a part of this, clearly. Uh, that's the number one issue. So we want to prevent it from, a, from becoming a problem as opposed to reacting to it. It's like anything else. Uh, it's all in the prevention. And in the prevention, we save a great deal of money as well as ink uh, in, in the event that, that these types of problems occur. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the impact of the LRT construction. Uh, eventually, they're going to put shovels in the ground and get this thing going right now. Uh, and I, I think you're bang on with your point here about being proactive on this instead of waiting to say, oh, my gosh, look at the problem we have now is doing something about this. Now, I know you've talked to city staff about this. What kind of a strategy can you employ to make sure that this problem doesn't get worse? Well, it is part of the RFP, though. Uh, so, in essence, uh, when, when it finally gets to that point, it's going to be built into the contract. The road into mitigation is uh, part of the, the contract that's uh, issued. And, and what sort of uh, what kind of policies, what, what kind of actions are there? Is it going to be up to the city to do this or the contractor no. who's actually doing the build? Well, we, we ultimately pay for it uh, because we're, we're paying the contractor sure. to do the job. But we the, the beauty of this one is Metrolink pays for it, so the province does, rather than the city. Because, as you know, the entire LRT project is being paid for by the province and not by the city. So by using that avenue, we're uh, actually mitigating our own our own costs accordingly. I've seen that... Uh uh, at the uh, the last meeting you had, I guess, uh, with public health and, and of course, uh, Sun Harden Cruz, who is the manager of vector-borne diseases for the city, uh, was also referencing some areas uh, up in Stony Creek, I guess, Maria Pearson and Doug Conley's wards. No. Uh, are they similarly having the same sorts of construction that uh, that you're having down in Ward 4? I'm not sure. My, well, no. Uh, Maria, perhaps, because she's an older part of the city, but yeah. um, Ward 9, I can't see that occurring. Uh, there might be other, uh, other contributing factors uh, there. Having said that, this problem is not unique to Hamilton or to any part of the city. It's, it's a city-wide problem um, and also a province-wide and North American-wide problem. Uh, frankly, on the list of the, the top, I think, 50, uh, I don't believe Hamilton even made the top, uh, the top 50 as a problematic city when it comes to rat infestation. Uh, there are many other cities that are far worse, but that doesn't mean we should be complacent. We need to actually get ahead of the curve and, and make it better. Well, I mean, you're the guy as the city councilor that answers those questions from your constituents. And, I, you know, no matter what the numbers are, if it's happening in somebody's backyard, it's the biggest problem they've ever faced. Oh, and obviously absolutely. that's how you have to deal with it, right? Indeed. 
So so on, on what scale would you say? Is this a major problem? Is this a growing concern? Or is this something that you think the city has under control? Oh, no, it's under control. But I think what the real message should be and must be that each and, ind- and, and you can access this information through my um, through the city webpage. If you go to my uh, my newsletter, I have a, a list, or even public health would probably be a better avenue, where they have a list of all uh, steps you can take to protect your home against uh, rat infestation, and it, it really works. Uh, during my town hall meeting, and those people that I worked with in neighborhoods um, to to react to a problem called back or emailed me back and said, "You know what? The problem has been solved." So. It really does rest on each and individual homeowner and for them to communicate to their neighbors if they see bird feeders. It's just not a good idea. I understand that it might be nice. I, I had one at one time, got rid of it quite quickly because of that reason. So it, it, it's, you just gotta, you gotta be very careful and understand that for every action is a reaction. And when, the, when it comes to bird feeders, the reaction is not something anyone wants to welcome. The uh, turnout of public meetings is usually a pretty good barometer as to how extensive the problem is. When you had that meeting, did you have a lot of folks show up? Well, I'll actually have quarterly town hall meetings. Okay. So, uh, and that was just on the agenda then? Right. So I'm, I have a pretty good turnout, in and around 100 per, per meeting. So uh, that issue was to dominate the uh, great deal of the time that we spent on the meeting. So they had a lot of questions. Because I don't think people understand why or how it happens. And... That's half the battle. So creating awareness about, and it's not about anything about cleanliness or what have you. I know a lot of there's a stigma attached to saying, oh, I had a rat in my backyard. It, it has nothing to do except two things, food and water sources. Um, they're striving every day to hunt those two things down. And if you have them in your backyard, they're going to hunt you down. They'll find you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Councillor Sam Rula. Uh, Sam, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Likewise, though. Take care. Take care. Uh, and if you have concerns about that, obviously contact your city council because there are some mitigating factors and, and the things that you can take into place. But uh, uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see just how this rolls out once the construction starts in such a big way like this. And, and he's absolutely right. We've heard about this in many other cities as well. And uh, uh, it's one of these things that, uh, I guess to use the old cliche, it's below the surface, so out of sight, out of mind. But, I mean, that's for a lot of these little vermin live. And uh, once you start digging down to the level of where sewers are, you're disturbing their nests. And you see this on a smaller scale, too. I, I can remember years ago moving into a new housing development. It was just, you know, the, the, the area across the road from me was just still open field. But once they started building houses there, all of a sudden you noticed all these little field mice would start running around. And the, the houses in my neighborhood back in those days said, hey, we got mice all of a sudden. Well, they were living in the field, but, you, you know, the, their homes are gone. So they start looking for other accommodation. And uh, the rats will do the same sort of thing, too. But uh, don't be an inviting homeowner and uh, give them all the opportunity to to plant themselves there. Anyway, interesting problem, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about that once the construction gets underway for the LRT. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. College students right across the province of Ontario right now are expressing concern, and justifiably so, frankly, with the current strike. Uh, they're concerned about things like loss of labs, uh, hands-on training, of course, in the community college situation. Uh, some co-op programs, of course, have been nixed and, and put on hold. That's causing a great deal of frustration. And, and, of course, certainly last but not least is classroom time, which, of course, is non-existent right now during this uh, strike, and we don't know how long this is going to last. So what can students do? Some of them are actually being proactive. We told you the other day on the program about the uh, petition right now to to try to get rebates for uh, tuition for uh, time lost. 
Uh, don't know where that's going to go, but we'll certainly talk about that in a couple of seconds. To get into all these issues, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Sammy Pritchard with the National Executive Representative for the Canadian Federation of Students. And uh, Sammy, first of all, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I mean, I think we're all concerned about strikes. Anytime there's a work stoppage, especially in the educational field, uh, it's problematic. And, and you know, the, the focus oftentimes of the news story, Sammy, with this is, well, what are the issues, wages, benefits, etc. cetera. Uh, and a lot of the time when these things happen, the, the plight of the students seems to get lost. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what, we at the Canadian Federation think, feel as though this is just another example of what happens when public funding for post-secondary education declines. Institutions are relying more and more on sessional facu- faculty or seasonal faculty, and there are no winners in this. You know, faculty continue to be paid poorly, and though faculty try very, very hard uh, for students to give them the quality that they deserve, college- colleges are maintaining an insubstantial workplace. So uh, is, it, is it fair to say that you're taking a side on this one? Uh, it's fair to say that students want colleges to get back to negotiating um, after they walked out on Saturday, so we urge them to come back um, and, and tackle this problem and, and continue with the negotiations with the faculty. So you're not saying who's right, who's wrong, or who should win or who should lose. In other words, you're just saying get back to work. Uh, of course we would rather a strike be avoided, um, but we urge all parties to try their very best to reach a fair deal for everyone. There's no denying that college faculty needs to be treated better. They're underpaid and overworked and unlike uh, university uh, professors have absolutely no academic freedom, and so what we're saying is that students need uh, to have these negotiations continue to unfold uh, to ensure that they, they're able to get back into the classrooms and, and get the quality of education that they deserve. Let's talk about the impact this is having on students, though, Sammy, and, and, and clearly that's a concern to an awful lot of families, I think. Uh, some are suggesting uh, that, uh, that, well, students could lose their year if this drags on and on and on. Now, we're being assured by those who supposedly have knowledge of this that that has never happened and it won't happen this time. Well, that may or may not be true, but the the, the frustration and, and I would think the stress that's caused in a situation like that with uh, students that want to get on with their education has got to be overwhelming. Yeah, most certainly it's going to be overwhelming for students. And so, again, that's why uh, we loop back to this discussion where we're seeing that this 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 pattern, if you will, of chronic underfunding for our post-secondary education system is causing an, an even further problem where it roots down right to the students. Um, and so that's where we're also um, encouraging the Premier and the Minister of Education and Skills Development to be encouraging colleges to get back to the table and help them to look ways to fund this system in a better way. Um, and in the meantime, uh, we're encouraging students to try to continue with regular readings and work outlined in their syllabuses. But of course, ultimately, it'll be up to the colleges and faculty members to determine how students will fulfill their academic requirements once this labor disruption has ended. Yeah, that's actually would vary, I guess, from situation to situation. But it, uh, for those that do want to get involved, and I would think that would be most of them, obviously, because, I mean, you're into post-secondary education. You, you like to think that you're streamed right now into a discipline that you're pretty interested in anyway, and, and perhaps, Maybe. you know, towards a edu- job, etc. Uh, you don't want any time off in a situation like that. What options are open to students like that to try to carry on at least with their learning, if not the classical education classroom style? Yeah, so like I said, we're just encouraging students to continue with their regular readings and that work that is outlined in their syllabus and to keep up with uh, their general research and studying in that sense. But it will be up to the colleges and the faculty members to determine how students will fulfill those academic requirements. Um, in the meantime, students can also check in with their institutions um, and find out what services are still being offered to them throughout the strike. 
again, I guess timing on this whole thing and how long this is going to actually uh, be go on. The, the work stoppage itself is going to be a factor in this whole situation right now. But but do you have discussions with student associations, with local student associations, to try to counsel them about this? Yeah, so the overall messaging that student associations are holding is, again, that um, we recognize that this is uh, a larger problem and a system of chronic underfunding in the post-secondary education sector in general. And so they're also uh, continuing to urge uh, the colleges to get back to the table and have these conversations with faculty, but also recognize the importance in, sh- in ensuring that their faculty is treated fairly. Um, they're overworked and underpaid, and, and students associations recognize that as well. And um, while they want the best for their students and to have a quality education, that needs to uh, be reflected in ensuring that their faculty is paid properly as well. How how involved uh, does, does your organization, does the uh, the Federation of Students, the Canadian Federation of Students, get involved in, in the minutia of this? I mean, there are some that are suggesting that uh, examples like this, and this is not the first community college work stoppage that we've seen over the years here in Ontario. There have been others in the past, unfortunately. Uh, and they're suggesting that, well, they shouldn't be allowed to strike. They should be binding arbitration and never get to that point, and simply because of the impact that it can have on students and their careers and their livelihoods in situations like this. Uh, do, do you favor something like that? Do you get deeply that deeply involved in, 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 in that discussion? Uh, as far as the discussion of negotiations, of course, we're not involved directly in the discussion of negotiations because that's the collective bargaining process. Um, but we do believe that the college has a responsibility to come together and work through these differences collaboratively with faculty. And, and this is the nature and the purpose of collective bargaining. And uh, we stand behind that purpose of collective bargaining and the need to work towards a fair um, and negotiated settlement that can bring an end to the current labor disruption at all Ontario public colleges. But do you have a stand on the issue of whether or not education is an essential service where striking should not be allowed? Uh, No, we think that education is an essential service, but we think that that education, um, with education, that there needs, needs to be fair. Um, that it needs to be equitable, and that goes down. That goes from everywhere, from the students to the faculty as well. Um, and of course, ultimately, we want to see the students back in the classroom and receiving the quality of education they deserve. And to ensure that they get that quality of education that they deserve, we need to have faculty who are not overworked and underpaid. Sammy, thank you so much for the time today. It's good talking with you. Yes, you as well. Thank you very much. You betcha, Sammy Pritchard, who is the national executive representative for the Canadian Federation of Students. I, I, I've talked to some families that have been impacted by this and and they're kind of betwixt and between here as to what they have to do uh, you know do you hire tutors to try to get on like that it's one thing to suggest just continue with the reading but uh the whole essence i think of, of the community college experience is to have that mentorship with uh with instructors and, and and in co-op programs and once that's there the learning experience i mean reading is is not the same as hands-on experience, as having that one-on-one relationship with somebody who has that experience in whatever discipline or whatever industry they're in. And that's lacking right now. And I can understand how these students are frustrated and how they want to see some action on this right now. Reading and, and just say, well, you know, read the textbook. Uh, that's not going to cut it for an awful lot of them. And, and look, at I don't think there's anybody that disagrees with the idea that they should get back to the bargaining table. But in talking to members of the union earlier this week and and uh, talking and listening to some of the uh, missives that we're hearing from the uh, the the agency that's uh, representing the colleges themselves. Uh, it sounds like there's a big big gap that has to be, I, I guess, narrowed here before there's any constructive decision about coming to a solution. So I don't know that this is going to get fixed anytime soon. So students and families, I guess, impacted by this, are uh, are going to have to make some decisions about this. And we've already had the discussion about uh, the students who are going to try to sue and get rebates on that. Uh, good luck with that. But on the other hand. Uh, they've paid for a service, 
And if that service is not there, maybe there is some legitimacy in them trying to seek some sort of compensation. We'll follow that story as well. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. My uh, HN commentary this morning, which is now up on our uh, Bill Kelly Show page on the CHML website, 900CHML.com, talks about uh, Bill Morneau, the finance minister, who is... uh, uh, continuing to uh, go on to the defensive, obviously, about, uh, well, it was a week or so ago, but his, uh, his tax proposals. Uh, subsequent, though, it, it has now turned into a, a debate and a feeding frenzy, really, about uh, the fact that he uh, uh, did not uh, put his uh, financial holdings uh, into a, f- a blind trust uh, once he uh, took over the portfolio of finance minister, one of the most important portfolios, obviously, in any government and certainly in uh, in the federal government. Uh, and it's it's an interesting discussion, an interesting debate. Uh, the Prime Minister was defending Mr. Morneau the other day, and Morneau himself has tried to uh, indicate that, look, he did what he was supposed to do. And I guess on one level that's true, because we're told that he did ask the Ethics Commissioner whether or not he should uh, file a blind trust, and she said that he didn't think it was necessary. And on that advice, he decided not to do it. Uh, but commentary this morning, though, suggests that that may well have been right from a legal standpoint, but uh, there is also the court of public opinion, and that's very much uh, in play right now as to what should have been done and the perception of what should be done. Uh, one of the people that uh, was certainly involved in uh, questioning uh, the prime minister and the finance minister about that is uh, the opposition leader, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Andrew Scheer, who is in town today, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Scheer, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's good to have you back here in Hamilton. I guess to get you out of the uh, the feeding frenzy that was going on in question period over the last couple of days, it's been a rather raucous week up on uh, Parliament Hill. It, it has. You know, normally I, I, I like to get out of the Ottawa area and get out uh, to different parts of the country, but this week uh, question period has uh, has been... Uh, you know, important. We, we, we've we've had a lot of revelations this week, so uh, I almost hate to hate to be missing it this afternoon. <laughs> well, I don't know if we can supply the same sort of drama here in Hamilton that you faced in the house over the last couple of days. But uh, I know you are going to do a Q and A. I guess at your luncheon meeting later on. But uh, I would I would suggest that uh, you're probably not going to feel to the same extent that Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudeau have over the last couple of days. No, I, I can assure you, I certainly don't have a, a bombshell to drop. A, you know, I certainly don't own. Thirty million dollars of shares in a in a company that because uh, because uh, if you did Andrew this is the time and place to do it you could do yeah. it on this program I'm okay with that <laughs> no uh, you know other than a, a few modest investments uh, uh, you know some, some GICs and mutual funds that's 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 the extent of my personal uh, savings it's certainly not in the order of thirty forty million dollars with one hundred six thousand dollars a month in in in, uh, in dividends. The political landscape in this country has changed. Uh, you, you were the new guy as of May 27th. You were the new leader of the Conservative Party, taking over, of course, from, from interim leader Ronna Ambrose. Uh, but you're not the new guy anymore. You're, you're the, the, almost the older guy now because Jamit Singh, of course, has taken over the, the federal NDP party right now. How, how does the landscape changing and personality changing like that affect the dynamic within Parliament? Well, uh, we'll have to wait and see a little bit. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, uh, having having been the new NDP leader, uh, you know, obviously brings a new dynamic. We, we've known the NDP to be represented by Tom Mulcair for the last few years. So we'll have to wait and see kind of what direction he he brings the party and, and what kind of uh, personal stamp he puts on it. He doesn't have a seat in the House, so that's going to be a little bit uh, of a challenge for him, I think. Uh, but for me, it's, it's, it's continuing on the same track that we have for the past few months. And fundamentally, it's pointing out that when 
the liberals enact their policies, it always ends up hurting the people they claim they want to help. So when they make these changes to the tax code, when they when they uh, you know try to do things to manage the economy, it seems like it's always the middle class, uh, hardworking Canadians that pay more, uh, and uh, and their policies end up leading to. To, to higher taxes and, and higher cost of living. So that's the broader theme we're pointing out. The small business tax hike that they uh, are trying to implement now and kind of walking away from parts and going ahead with others uh, was a perfect example of that. Uh, claiming to go after uh, millionaires in the top 1%, they managed to find a way to uh, alienate and, and threaten, really, uh, financially threaten uh, mechanics and, and pizza shop owners and, and entrepreneurs and then we had this bizarre uh, proposal to tax employee discounts. You know, everyone from a waiter or waitress to a, a shoe salesman to someone working in retail, a uh, car salesman who might get a bit of a break on, uh, on buying a new car. Or, you know, the, w- w- this, this mentality is just coming out more and more that, that this government is just spending all their time looking for new ways to raise taxes. And we've talked about that extensively in the program, and I, I, I guess, I'm hoping anyway, the, the government's received that message. But, but you talked about uh, waiting to see exactly what kind of a leader Jagmeet Singh is going to be. Uh, you've gone through that process. Uh, you know, a- after you won uh, back in May, people were saying, well, who is Andrew Scheer? Which way is the party going to go? Uh, is it going to be the party of Stephen Harper? Uh, it's, it's, it was different under Ronna Ambrose, for instance. Uh, you described yourself at the time as a true conservative. What did you mean by that? Well, I think it, uh, fundamentally it means somebody who recognizes that there's more to society than just government. And one of the things that is, is frustrating for me is every time that there's an issue, every time that there's a, a public policy debate, uh, those on the left, you know, the, the Liberals and NEP, constantly and, and consistently uh, call for more government. You know, we need the government to do this, we need more of this, more programs, more spending, uh, more regulation. And I think one thing that kind of all conservatives can agree on, whether they're red Tories, blue Tories, uh, fiscal conservatives, uh, uh, foreign policy conservatives, is that, uh, yeah, there's a role for government to play, and we have to make sure that our society uh, takes care of those uh, most vulnerable, those who can't help themselves. We have to have that kind of compassionate side to government. But there's so much more be- beyond government in society. We've got not-for-profit groups. We've got volunteers. We've got the private sector. We've got families, communities. Sometimes it just means lower levels of government, letting uh, letting provinces uh, control their jurisdictions, letting school boards do their work, letting municipalities uh, control their areas. And, and this kind of unceasingly large government, more and more centralization in Ottawa, one-size-fits-all approach from coast to coast, that's what I meant by, by a true conservative, that uh, I really do believe uh, that, that in many cases government can do more to help people by uh, getting out of the way, uh, letting entrepreneurs do their job, letting families save and invest, and letting communities thrive and, and flourish without all that uh, centralized uh, approach. But the criticism that you've heard, I know, and other conservative leaders have heard over the years, is, well, you do that at the expense of the social safety net, which every country needs, uh, and environmental issues. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you balance that? How do you balance that, that getting out of government, or getting out of people's faces at the same time, assuring that, that those sorts of things still need to be looked after? Well, I think that uh, you hit the nail on the head. That that is always the the, the the challenge, you know, because I do believe it's actually better for those programs when you have a, a thriving economy. You know, we, we know what happens in countries that have governments that uh, want to do a lot on the social side, but they take steps to, to punish the economy or that damage the economy to do it. And then you end up 
with less money available, less funds available for the government to provide those services. Uh, and and there's a, there are a lot of examples around the world. And even here in Canada, you know, we have a, a Kathleen Wynne government in Ontario that has uh, a huge uh, and ambitious uh, program for, for more spending, uh, but they're taking steps to damage the economy to the point where they're running out of money. The, the deficit's just you know, uh, have racked up and the debt is racked up. So our message for people who want to make sure that society's most vulnerable uh, are taken care of, that, that there are safety nets there for those that need it, is that those programs are jeopardized when you have out-of-control spending, big deficits, higher taxes, and a sputtering economy. So uh, we can do both, and I believe the conservative approach of, of, uh, of making sure that those programs are there, are well-funded, and are flexible... And again, you know, sometimes government's not always the best deliverer of, of those of those programs and services. You know, the uh, you've got high bureaucratic costs, you've got administration, you've got waste. So a lot of times, dollars flowing through government aren't the most effective way to deliver some of those services and programs. So unleashing the power of of, of the rest of society, the, uh, the the power of the not for profits, the power of the volunteer community, uh, th- that's something that, that should be part of the equation, should be part of the conversation. I know it's a whirlwind tour for you today, but uh, perhaps at a future date we can get you in studio here and we can have a more fuller discussion about this. But thank you so much for the time today, Andrew. My pleasure. Always great to chat and I always love uh, visiting the region. Th- thanks again. Andrew Shear, of course, the leader of the uh, Federal Conservative Party. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.